The following message is by Dr. Matt Thornton, pastor of North Bryant Baptist Church. For more information on what we believe and for many other helpful Bible lessons, we encourage you to visit our website at northbryantbaptist.org. That is northbryantbaptist.org. If you will, open your Bibles to Exodus chapter 20. We're up to the sixth commandment today. It's only four words, probably, in your English translation. Just two words in the original Hebrew. So, it should be a short sermon. And since we're not having lunch fellowship, I will get you to the restaurants before other churches, right? That's always a good thing. Let's read this short verse together. Exodus 20, verse 13. You shall not murder. Seems pretty self-explanatory, doesn't it? It's easy to see how that would help society in ancient Israel and today. If you don't run around killing other people, it's a better world. So this is a simple commandment, right? Maybe so. But there's at least one scholar who thinks this may be the most misunderstood of all the commandments. And it's because of the different ways it has been translated, specifically one different way. If you have a King James Version, you see the word kill instead of the word murder. But there's a big difference between those two words. C.S. Lewis once wrote that all killing is not murder any more than all sexual intercourse is adultery. There's an important distinction, and God made that clear with the wording in the Hebrew. Hebrew language has multiple words for killing. This is not your generic word that could cover all sorts of killings. But this is a word that was used specifically in context of murder and sometimes manslaughter. So it covers premeditated killings, violence, rage that leads to murder, and again, also the, what we would call the accidental killing of another human. We call it manslaughter. We know in our country that manslaughter and murder are handled differently. And they were handled differently in the law as well. There were provisions for manslaughter, such, uh, such things like the cities of refuge and things like that. We won't get into all that today, but it does still fall under this word. My point is that it's paramount that we understand kill and murder are different. And the wording bears that out. It's such a, a clear distinction that if we don't understand that, we'll, we will miss this entire command. Some people like to add words to the command to sort of show that in English. They might hear someone say, never kill unlawfully, never kill immorally. Those are fine ways to think about this. Or you could just say never, you know, murder. If we miss the distinction between killing and murder, we're going to struggle with a lot of apparent contradictions in Scripture and in our own lives and things that we see all the time in our world. All right, so I want to start with what types of killing this command does not prohibit. First, this command does not prohibit the killing of plants and animals. This word was only ever used of killing another human or killing a human. And so you cannot use this verse to promote veganism or vegetarianism. If you don't want to eat meat, that's fine. It's more for me. Y'all knew I was going to say that. If you want to eat nothing but vegetables, and that's great. That's fine. 
but you can't use this verse to condemn people who eat meat because an animal was killed in the process. It has nothing to do with killing animals. If a black widow spider crawls across your leg, don't let it quote the sixth commandment to you. That'd be weird anyway, right? The spider's not protected by this law. Squash him. And then after you do that, what will you say? Will you say, I murdered a spider? No, what do you say? I killed a spider. There's a difference. Also, the life of plants and animals should be respected and never taken haphazardly without purpose. We are to be good stewards of this earth. Or of this earth. That goes all the way back to creation. But you're not violating this command if you chop down a tree or go hunting or fishing or squash a bug. Okay? This has to do with humans. So what about other humans? Are there killings of people that fall outside of this command? And the answer is yes. First, this command does not prohibit you from defending yourself. Remember, I said in a, a few sermons ago, your freedom ends where someone else's begins and the same is true in reverse. So if someone comes up to you and they say, I'm going to kill you and there's nothing you can do about it because of this command. That doesn't work that way. They are violating your freedom at that point, not to mention the obvious that they are violating this command, but you have the freedom and the right to be alive. They don't have the right to take that from you. So you have the right to defend yourself. Defending yourself is not murder. The law even stated that more clearly in Exodus 22, verse 2. There's no penalty in the law for self-defense. Moses wrote in Exodus 22, 2. If a thief is found breaking in and is struck so that he dies, there shall be no blood guilt for him. That's just two chapters from now. The person who defended himself or his family and killed that thief was not a murderer. There was no punishment for him. We can see in that scenario, in that verse, that self-defense can also extend beyond yourself. You can defend your family. If someone breaks into my house and is threatening the life of my wife and my children, I have the right to defend them. We can extend that further to the men who are defending us today. God forbid something happened. If we ever had a life-threatening situation while we're worshiping and one of our men ended that situation to protect our lives, they have done nothing wrong. That person is not a murderer. They killed, but in self-defense, it's not murder. Now, you still took a life, and I can't imagine the burden that you will still feel. It's still a very weighty, serious thing, even if it's justified, because life's precious. So taking a life, whether lawful or unlawful, should never be done lightly. We could extend that to police and SWAT teams and things like that. If someone is in a movie theater and begins to shoot, the police are not wrong to take that man out. It's not wrong whatsoever. So self-defense might mean killing, but that is not classified as murder. So it does not violate this commandment. And if we even extend the idea of self-defense a, a bit further, we, we understand the next type of killing that does not violate this command. This commandment does not prohibit war so long as the war is just. Now that's, that's a tough thing 
That's, we're not going to get into the weeds of whether or not a war is just. Uh, that would be a completely different sermon. But I want to give you a quick example that I think can keep it simple enough. In World War II, Hitler and his Axis powers were evil. And they were wrong to do what they did and kill so many people. They violated this command. They murdered millions. However, the allied nations who also went to war and fought against Hitler, they were not breaking this command. They were defending their nations and defending and protecting the lives of millions of people that were threatened by their evil. Now, just like killing in self-defense, no war should ever be taken lightly, but not all war is wrong. Okay, the sixth commandment is not a command to be pacifists. One very specific type of war and killing that's not uh, condemned in this verse is what we would call holy war. Israel is going to engage in holy war when they took Canaan. God would command them to kill the Canaanites and they're going to possess the promised land. Some people may see a contradiction there. Well, here in Exodus 20, God told them not to kill. But then when they take Canaan, he tells them to kill the Canaanites. So what gives? There's no contradiction at all. That's why understanding the language is paramount. They were never to murder. But when they took the land of Canaan, that was divine holy war. They were the instruments God used to enact his holy judgment upon the wicked Canaanites. Just divine judgment meted out through the Israelite armies. Israel's not wrong to do that. I'm going to give you one more example of a future holy war that is not condemned by this command. When the Antichrist rises to power, eventually he will gather all the nations to fight against Israel and to destroy the Jews. However, Jesus won't have it. Jesus will return. And in Zechariah 14, the prophet mentions that he will strike the Antichrist armies with a plague so severe that their flesh, their tongues, and their eyes will rot as they stand. It will confuse them so much they will start killing each other. And then the Apostle Paul said in 2 Thessalonians that the Lord Jesus will kill the lawless one with the breath of his mouth and bring him to nothing by the appearance of his coming. When Jesus ends that war, he will not be a murderer. He will be the savior. He will be the deliverer, the protector, the life giver. He will be delivering divine justice upon the most wicked army and the most wicked man ever. So not all wars are wrong. Sometimes war is just. Sometimes it is a holy war. Sadly, you know that a lot of wars throughout history have not been just, and a lot have been labeled as, quote, holy wars, when there was nothing, nothing holy about them at all. Again, that's a whole other sermon. So self-defense does not violate this command. Some wars do not violate this command. And another type of killing that is not murder and therefore is not prohibited by this command is that of capital punishment. When a government executes a convicted criminal, they did kill him. But that's not murder. It's justice. They're not guilty of breaking this command. That's only for governments, though. 
you and I can't run around as individuals and be vigilantes and grab criminals and kill them. That would be murder. We don't have that authority, but governments do. The Apostle Paul wrote in Romans 13 that civil authority, quote, does not bear the sword in vain, for he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Governments that enforce the death penalty are not violating this command, although they are killing, okay? That's a weighty thing always when a life is taken, but governments are not wrong to enforce the death penalty. Do you see why it's so important to understand what this Hebrew word actually meant? But I think it is a fair question to say, why are those killings that we just mentioned, why are those justified? Why would God allow uh, defending yourself and executing a criminal and those types of things? Well, one author just simply wrote, the answer is that their goal is not the destruction of life, but it's preservation. Killing in self-defense preserves life. War warring against Hitler protects people. Executing a murderer prevents him from murdering again. So the reason we engage in those killings sometimes is because we understand that life is valuable. Human life's precious. If there's nothing else you take away from the sermon today, you need to know that your life is beyond precious in the sight of God. You did not evolve. You were created in God's image. He didn't just speak humans into existence, but pun intended, he got his hands dirty. Throughout the creation story in Genesis chapter one, God spoke things into existence and it happened. He could have done the same with us, but he didn't. Listen to what Moses said about his creation of us. The Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and the man became a living creature. He didn't just speak us into existence. It was a little more hands-on. So although all life comes from God, that includes plants and animals. He created everything. Your life, human life, came from God in a little bit different way, a little more intimate way. Your life means more. You're an eternal spirit. You're made in God's image. Nobody has the right to steal your life from you. That is a gift from God. That's why God gave this command because he values your life so much that he forbids it to be taken from you. Think about that. He forbids your life to be taken from you. Obviously, that entails cold-blooded, premeditated murder, rage and revenge killings, things like that. But you all knew that before you walked in today. Right? Y'all didn't send me to the seminary so I could tell you murder's wrong. You all knew that. So I want to go a bit further and point out a couple of other killings now that are still forbidden by this command because they are killings that are murder but are not always labeled as such in our society. I mentioned this is just two Hebrew words. There's nothing added, right? There's no clarification, no further explanation, no, no wiggle room. Notice that it does not even say do not murder 
others. So this condemns suicide. Taking your own life is murder. You don't have the right to do that because your life is, your life is a gift from God. Please don't ever consider doing that. Your life is too precious to take it. There's nothing that you're facing, no matter how stressful or frightening or inescapable it may seem. And we face situations like that. But no matter how bad it seems, there is nothing that warrants those thoughts and or actions. Suicide's a permanent end to a temporary problem. If that's something you are entertaining or if that's something in your mind, talk with someone and get help. It's serious. God loves you too much for you to do that. Now, I will add, suicide is murder. However, someone, if someone who is saved takes his or her own life, they're still saved. They do not go to hell. Not all denominations of under the larger umbrella of Christianity teach that. Some people teach that if your last act is suicide, then you die and go to hell. But that cannot be found in the Bible. The opposite is found in the Bible. The Bible teaches there is no condemnation for those in Christ. The Bible teaches that the salvation Christ offers is called eternal life. You and I know that after we're saved, we still sin. Sinning after salvation does not change the fact that you're saved. Suicide is a terrible sin. It should be viewed as a tragedy. But God is so amazing that it doesn't change who you are in Christ. Another killing that this commandment forbids that's not labeled as murder in our society is called euthanasia, assisted suicide. When someone is perhaps older or there's some tragic thing that happens and they have a very poor quality of life, nobody has the right to take that person's life prematurely and call it mercy. You can pray for God to be merciful, but if you take another human's life in the eyes of God, that's murder, not mercy. And finally, this prohibits abortion. Abortion is murder because human life begins at the point of conception. A baby in his or her mother's womb is alive. God knows that person. I want you to listen to what David wrote in Psalm 139. He wrote that God formed my inward parts. He wrote, you knitted me together in my mother's womb. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. Listen to this. In your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me when as yet there was none of them. If God knew David in his mother's womb and knew the days that were planned for him, I'm going to say David was alive and was a person. This category of murder is something that our country is overwhelmingly guilty of. Depending on the year and depending on what research company you look at to get statistics from, roughly, roughly one million babies are murdered each year in our country. 
That's unfathomable. God forgive us. Before you came in today, again, you knew that murder is wrong. We need to also be aware that suicide, euthanasia, and abortion are all wrong as well. It's unlawful to take a human life because that person was created in the image of God to have a relationship with him and to live for his glory. Now, if we go through life without murdering someone, does that mean we're keeping this commandment perfectly and we're not guilty? Well, let's let Jesus decide that for us, right? Turn to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5. I'm going to read verse 17 through 26. This is during the famous Sermon on the Mount. Matthew 5, verse 17. Jesus said, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, therefore, Whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Verse 21, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder. And whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. So if you're offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you're going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you be put into prison. Truly, I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. Jesus taught us that God's standard goes far beyond a physical obedience to a law. Jesus specifically told the people that righteousness needs to exceed that of the scribes and Pharisees, which would have shocked the initial hearers. Because to them, the scribes and the Pharisees were the holiest people in Israel. They were the ones who strived and were so careful to keep the law. Jesus, on the other hand, did fulfill the law perfectly. And part of his fulfillment of the law meant that he interpreted it correctly as well and taught it correctly. And in the Sermon on the Mount, there are several sections here where Jesus went beyond the letter of the law to the spirit of the law, to the purpose of the law. Now, specifically with this command, notice what he said and how he taught it. Well, of course they were not to murder. He said, you've heard this. You've heard from old it was said, don't murder. And if you do, there will be judgment. They knew that. But in their mindset, as long as they didn't physically murder then they wouldn't be guilty and there would be no judgment. Jesus taught quite the contrary. Jesus taught that even anger in your heart condemns you to judgment. Now, his point was not that anger is just as bad as murder. He did not say, well, since you're mad at him, you might as well kill him. I'd much rather you be mad at me 
then murder me. The earthly consequences are quite different between anger and murder. Jesus' point was to show us the depths of our sinfulness. Just because your hands aren't stained with blood doesn't mean your heart is cleansed. Murderers need forgiveness. So, so do angry people. We all need forgiveness at the deepest level. We can't keep this command perfectly and escape judgment just by never physically murdering someone. We're still guilty. Unrighteous anger and hatred are wicked. John later wrote in 1 John chapter 3, everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. Jesus would later say in Matthew 15 that sins like murder come out of the heart anyway. We're so sinful that even when we don't act sinfully, we often think it, we feel it, we desire it, we, we harbor it secretly. I'm not going to murder you, but I might harbor some hateful anger towards you. But what judge on this earth could ever condemn me for that? There's no judge that knows what I'm thinking or feeling or secretly, you know, secretly desiring. There's one judge that does. His name is Jesus. We're all guilty before God. And since he's the God who tries our hearts, we need a righteousness that goes beyond surface level law keeping. If you make it through life without murdering anyone, that's great. You're still guilty before the judge. Your heart condemns you even if your actions don't. Jesus' point was that you need forgiveness and you need it yesterday. That's Jesus' point at the end of the section we read. When he talked about leaving your, offer, uh, leaving your offering at the altar and then coming to terms with your accuser before the courtroom, he meant that when you realize you're guilty, make things right as soon as you can. Don't wait until you're before the judge. It's too late then. Take care of things ASAP. Now, of course, Jesus meant for those illustrations to go a step beyond this life. That's good advice, but go a step further into the spiritual realm. Once you realize you're guilty of sin before God, who is the all-knowing judge who tries not only your actions, but your heart, you need to get right with him as soon as possible. Don't wait around. Don't put it off. Don't wait till you're standing in front of him in judgment. It's too late then. Well, how do I get right with God? Well, the scribes and Pharisees of Jesus' day were trying to do that by keeping the law. Do you remember what Jesus called them? Hypocrites. He said, we need a righteousness that goes beyond their righteousness, which again would have shocked the people who heard that. Jesus' point was, that you need, was not that you need to keep the law better than they did. That would have been impossible to the people. Jesus' point was that you can't keep the law, so you need me. 
You need my righteousness to be given to you. In order to be right with God, you need Jesus Christ to cleanse you from within and to forgive you. If you're aware of that, if you know that you're guilty, make things right with God as soon as you can. When you feel the Holy Spirit convicting you, don't, don't put him off. Don't wait. Trust him. If you do that, Jesus will take away your guilt and he will give you his righteousness. And it is a righteousness that exceeds anything men can do. It's the only righteousness that can make you right before God. So never commit murder. But that does not prohibit self-defense, just wars and capital punishment. Along with the obvious, it does prohibit suicide, euthanasia and abortion. But more than that, the spirit of this law penetrates deeper than just our actions. It goes even to the anger and hatred we may harbor in our heart. So never commit murder, but realize it takes more than never committing murder to be righteous before God. We're all guilty. And that's why Jesus Christ died for us. In just a moment, the members of North Bryant will observe the Lord's Supper. And we didn't plan this to where this sermon about murder was on the same Sunday that we remember our Lord's death. God just worked that out for us. The unleavened bread that we'll eat represents Jesus' broken body and the, the grape juice, the fruit of the vine, represents his shed blood. The crucifixion of Jesus Christ was the most unjust death, the most unjust killing in history. It was beyond evil for Judas, the mob, the religious leaders, Pilate, the Roman soldiers to crucify him. But strictly speaking, he was not murdered. He gave up his life. He said in John, no one takes it from me, but I lay it down so that I might take it up again. They could not have touched him if he didn't allow it. Do you remember what happened when they came to arrest him? And he asked, whom do you seek? And when he identified himself as the I am, they fell down. He was willing or they wouldn't have been able to touch him. It was not murder. It was an undeserved death and an unlawful killing. But we can't just blame Judas and the religious leaders, even though they're easy pickings. He died for you and me. It was our sins that nailed him to the cross just as much as Judas's betrayal. He died an undeserved death so that we could have undeserved life. Whoever repents and trusts in Jesus is cleansed so deeply and forgiven of so much, everything, not just what you've done, but what you've thought, that you stand right before your creator. Not because of what you've done, but because of what Jesus did for you. 
If you need the forgiveness of Jesus Christ today, trust him now before it's too late. Let's stand. Let's have a word of prayer. Father, we're thankful for your word. And there's a lot in these short words. We're thankful that you protect our lives with this command. We pray that we would not be murderers with our hands or our hearts. Help us to love others and be good witnesses for you, God. Thank you so much for Jesus's unlawful death that he did not deserve. We're thankful for his sacrificial love that he would lay his life down for us. And if there's someone here today who needs to be saved, Father, we pray for that. It's in Jesus' name that we ask all these things. Amen.